Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis 45, and we will read the whole chapter. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the lands for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that this is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father all of my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them, and after this, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours." The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them, he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. 
But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had carried him, the spirit of their father, of Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of the Lord. God entrusted his plan for salvation to one man and his family. And we've been following the story of Abraham and Sarah and their family through four generations. And, and if you've been with us, you know that it had been 22 years since Joseph's brothers, since Jacob's sons, had thrown Joseph into a pit, had sold him off as a slave to Egypt, and then fabricated a story about his death. And when at last... Judah, and you remember from last week, Judah's impassioned, persuasive speech to the man that they had dealing with, had been dealing with, buying grain from him, this austere man. Um, Joseph finally could not hide his true identity any longer, and he breaks down, and he reveals to his brothers the truth about who he is. And when the brothers discovered that the man they had been dealing with all that time, buying grain from them, essentially the Lord of Egypt, when they discovered that it was their brother Joseph, it says in verse 3 that they were speechless. And it says they were dismayed at his presence. Have you ever had a family reunion like that? But in one of the most moving episodes in the, entire, in the entire Bible, Joseph, with all the power of Egypt behind him, doesn't take out vengeance on his brothers. He doesn't play the payback game. He doesn't rage against them. I think we imagine in a scenario like that, when Joseph finally gets to reveal to his brothers who had hated him and made his life horrible, uh, we imagine something like, like what we see in the movie Gladiator, when Commodus discovers that the slave who had been winning all of those gladiator contests was in fact Maximus, the man he had tried to murder years before. And, and if you've seen that movie, you remember in this, this, it makes the entire movie. Now, this intense point where the emperor Commodus looks at this man and he takes his mask off and he says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. And, and everyone is shocked. He's alive. He's alive after all this time. And Maximus says to Commodus, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. It makes the whole movie. Now, you know, if, if Maximus had said to Commodus, you know, Commodus, I've been thinking all these years and uh, I've decided to forgive you. Everything's okay. It, the movie would be over. Nobody would have watched it. It wouldn't have been, a, it just wouldn't be a good story. Forgiveness. Joseph's response to his brothers baffles our conventional sense of justice. Or should I say Vengeance. But how Joseph responded to his brothers, his response, all of it, from the beginning when they came down to Egypt looking for grain because they were starving, and he recognized who they, who they were, but didn't reveal his true identity. 
through the whole process of finally breaking down when they were ready for it and revealing to them who he actually was. The whole process, Joseph's response to them succeeded in facilitating family reconciliation. Joseph believed, and here's why. Joseph believed that God's sovereign purpose was behind his suffering. God's sovereign purposes are behind your suffering. That is essentially the Christian response to suffering. As I continue, I want to, make, I want to define two things, two terms that you've, you've heard me talk about a lot in the Joseph cycle as we've been looking at Joseph's story. And one is simply sovereignty. Uh, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, what we mean is that the creator's will and plan for all things are without exception accomplished in all things. And that nothing or no one can thwart God's good purposes. Like he said in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The sovereignty of God. Uh, you also hear quite often in discussions about Joseph and his life, the concept of providence. Providence, according to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is simply God's works, his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So, for example, Proverbs chapter 19 tells us, many are the plans in, a mind, in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that stands. And the Bible views suffering in light of a sovereign God who providentially works to fulfill his plans in the universe, in history, and in our lives. Now, granted, the way things look on the ground usually is not very good. The way things looked for Joseph, most of the story, like in our lives, did not look very good from the human perspective. But after all, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, and we didn't cover this in our series, but it's, it's, it really is important right now. When humanity fell in the garden and God approached the man and the woman and the serpent, Satan, who deceived them, and they ended up following him instead of their creator. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first time in the Bible that we see God's promise of a future redemption for all of humanity. But in this moment, God says to the serpent, there is going to be continual enmity between you and your seed and the woman and her seed. And sure enough, as we read through the book of Genesis, as we look at the Genesis history, we see that this enmity begins to unfold between Satan and the family of the promise. And we see that the promise, which is kept through Abraham and his descendants, is always being threatened, right? For Abraham and Sarah, the threat was their old age, Sarah's barrenness. And then you look at Isaac's life, and you see another threat in Isaac and Rebekah and in their twin sons, Jacob and Esau. You see family conflict. You even see military wars threatening 
the life of this family of the promise. And finally, during Joseph's life, it's a widespread regional famine threatening the survival of this family of the promise. And in the background, we see that the, that the serpent and his seed are always at work threatening the stability of God's people. But what the Bible illustrates in Joseph is something that we all today can take great comfort in. And it's this, that God's sovereign plan to bless you overrules and outwits Satan's plan to curse you. And as we talk about the sovereignty of God in the life of Joseph, I want to talk about Satan's and your enemy's plans. I want to talk about Jesus's plan as well. We're going to look at Satan's plans, your enemy's plans, people's plans to do whatever they desire to do to you. But I want to look at the plans of Jesus Christ because we're going to find hope in him. Look, God's sovereignty overrules your plans. Newsflash. God's sovereignty overrules the plans of anybody who opposes you as well. Now, look, the brothers planned for Joseph something that was, I'm just going to say it, wicked. The brothers, Jacob's sons, their plans for Joseph were simply wicked. But listen to Joseph's perspective 22 years later during this reunion. And you see it in verse 5 and then in verses 7 and 8. They're scared to death because they discover that the ruler of Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt, is their little brother whom they hated and mistreated. And they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They're thinking it's, it's our heads any moment right now. And Joseph says to them, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph went on to say, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, meaning a counselor, an advisor, a top advisor to Pharaoh and Lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see, Joseph brings God's sovereignty into the picture three times. He mentions it three times. God sent me. God sent me. God sent me. And I think this is fascinating, what, what Joseph is doing here. You see this, that Joseph minimizes his brother's culpability in his own suffering. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't ignore or deny that they did a bad thing. He simply doesn't credit them as the primary movers and shakers of his life. Rather, he says three times, God brought me to Egypt. Why? Ultimately, to save our lives, to save, to save your lives and the life of our father Jacob and our, our entire clan, and to save many people. Because what we know is not only Egypt, but the entire region was spared because God sent Joseph to Egypt. So since God was the author of Joseph's destiny, are you wondering if maybe God was the author of the brother's wickedness? If God sent Joseph to Egypt, can we then attribute the brother's sin to God? It's a logical question to ask. 
The simple answer is no. No, it actually says in Psalm 92 that the Lord is upright. Take a look at Psalm 92, the very end of it. It says, the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. If you read what, John, what the theologian John Calvin wrote about this passage of Scripture, John Calvin said, look, if you, read it, if you look at what Joseph is saying here and, and the belief that Joseph had, uh, Joseph is describing the very same act, being sold as a slave to Egypt. Joseph is ascribing the very same act to both his brothers and to God. But Calvin goes on to write but with very different motives. Joseph's, uh, Joseph is saying, you had a particular set of plans and motives for sending me to slavery, and God had a completely different set of plans and motivation for sending me into slavery. The brothers, their, their, their motivation, their plan was to destroy Joseph. But according to what Joseph is saying, God's plan was what? To bless all families on earth through Abraham and his seed. Something God told Abraham, his great-grandfather, way back at the beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. The brothers meant a wicked thing for Joseph. But what he's saying here is same event, same circumstances. God had a completely different plan, a completely different motivation. And John Calvin says, no, John, uh, no, God is not guilty of the sins that the brothers committed. So God can be completely sovereign, fully in control of a situation, providentially working out his plan, even through the very wicked things that people do. Joseph was able to distinguish between people's intentions and God's overruling intentions. The scholar Joyce Baldwin, also talking about this passage, wrote that Joseph had been able, this is really important for us, Joseph had been able to come to terms with the situation because he had been able to trace the hand of God in all that had happened to him. The unmistakably evil plans of Joseph's brothers, when they sold him, had been incorporated into God's greater and altogether good purpose of saving life. So God's sovereignty overrules the wicked plans of people that are behind our suffering. Now, what we call senseless violence, you know, sometimes people say, well, I can understand why so-and-so did that. But this crime, this atrocity, that corruption was senseless. We, we understand what it just, we go, we can't imagine why something that's so terrible, why something like that would happen. It defies our logic as decent people. I understand that. But theologically speaking, there are no, there's no senseless violence. Uh, there is no senseless tragedy. There is always rational intent behind every terrible thing and injustice that takes place. Even if the human being committing it doesn't know what they're doing, there is rational intent behind all suffering. It just may not be coming from men and women. You see, Satan's plans on a much more deeper level are behind your suffering. Satan's plans, according to Scripture, are behind human conflict and injustice. 
the world's conflict and your very suffering itself spring from a hidden spiritual reality. In scripture, look, Genesis were very early in salvation history, but the biblical writers will tease this thing out as we go along so that by the time you have the apostle Paul thousands of years later in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul said, look, put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is most unwise, it is foolish to ignore that your soul has a spiritual enemy. John Piper said that Satan is real and terrible. And his designs are hateful. But he is not sovereign. God is. The Bible overwhelming it, it is not even a close match. The Bible overwhelmingly shows that God's sovereignty even overrules Satan's plans. It was Frodo in, in The Lord of the Rings who at one point, you know, the wicked dark lord Sauron. It, there's no match for Sauron. In, in the grand scheme of things, not even close. Even the best people, the, the, most, the best of wizards, like nobody can match the strength and power of this wicked, wicked leader, Sauron. And as he is amassing strength and darkness to himself to take over the world, right? the, the only hope is that this ring of Sauron's can be destroyed. But somehow, the ring ended up in Bilbo Baggins' pocket. And now it's been given to Frodo, and in the midst of the disaster and the treachery and the darkness, little Frodo says, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. And what we need to hear today is that something the wizard Gandalf said in response to that to Frodo is extremely important when we consider Joseph's life and your own life. Gandalf said, there are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it. And that is a very encouraging thought. And actually, the, the screenplay writers of the movie, because you can imagine I went and watched all the behind-the-scenes footage, but the screenplay writers attribute this theme in The Lord of the Rings to, to J.R.R. To R. R. Tolkien's Christianity. They say, oh yeah, that theme in the movie, that's because Tolkien was a Christian. There are other forces at work in the world. You were meant to find the ring. And that is a very encouraging thought. I don't think Joseph read The Lord of the Rings. Uh, but in all that he had suffered, he came to the same conclusion. There are other forces at work in the world. And that is a very encouraging thought. And that guided him to be able to approach his brothers as a peacemaker. So you and I can see our suffering through the lens of God's, God's purpose. Yeah, people mean to harm you. God's purpose 
We can begin to see our suffering through that. And most of the time, you won't know what is God's purpose. Joseph was very privileged in developing that sense. We don't hear God speaking to Joseph in the way that God spoke to Jacob or spoke to Abraham. And yet Joseph comes to this conclusion. Now, here's the thing. You will not always know what God's purpose is. The key is to know that he has one. Not what is God's purpose, but that he has a purpose, even in your suffering. We want to cast our enemies as the lead roles in our lives. We want to say they're, they're the protagonists. They're the antagonists. They're the lead roles in the tragedies that we have faced. But see, Christianity gives us a more satisfying perspective. God is the lead actor. God is the lead actor. More than that, God is the playwright. God wrote the story. And God uses their attempts to curse us as the very means by which he blesses us. And through us, blesses other people. So have you given your life's lead role to people who don't deserve the credit for it? We obsess over our past. We obsess over the tragedies that we've endured and, and the people who have caused them. I just think of Jonathan talking to the kids saying, my dad died when I was a little boy. And if that's all I'd ever focus on, I would be blind and ignorant or stubborn to see all the blessings that God has worked in my life. And I can tell you, knowing Jonathan personally, that the death of his father very much brought abundant blessing to him. Now, look, I want to acknowledge, I do want to acknowledge the horrible wounds that each of you carry from those who have hurt you in this life and from the unfortunate tragedies that you have faced. I, don't, I want to acknowledge that. And I don't want to dismiss that for a second. But you give your enemies too much credit, my friends. You give too much weight to the people who hurt you and to your tragedies. God was with you. God was with you. His purpose was greater. His reasoning and rationality was infinitely deeper. And his purposes will succeed over whatever plans have been executed to harm you. People have plans. Satan has plans. But it was almost as if when the eternal son of God became a human being, and you can read about it in the Gospels, and as you read the Gospels, it almost comes across as if Jesus had no plans. And we've got a plan for everything. We had a plan to plant this church. You have a plan to make your dinner tonight. It almost came across as though Jesus had no plans. This seems odd, but let me explain what I mean. In John chapter 6, Jesus is talking, he's teaching, and at one point he says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In another place he said, you know, God's will to do the will of the creator, it's like food for me. It nourishes me. It keeps me going. In a sense, the son of God in his humanity 
as a human being, fully entrusted himself to his heavenly father's plans. He honestly, legitimately could say as a human being that he didn't have any big plans. His job was to do the will of his heavenly father. So, So if God could say as a human being, I exist to honor the plans of my father, then surely you and I can find a way there. But it only can come in the lesson that Peter learned. Because when uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed before he was executed and, and the guards came to arrest him because he was, had been falsely accused and they were going to take him away. Some of you know, what did, what did Peter do? Right? He, he took a sword and he, he, he slashed one of the guards. He slashed the high priest's servant. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, no, put your sword away. And then Jesus said, shall I not drink the cup that the father has given to me? Shall I not drink the cup, the cup of wrath? Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? See, Jesus in that moment acknowledged that even though the Jews had rejected him and even though the Romans were about to crucify him and even though his friends betrayed him and even though his own family thought he was nuts, God sent his son to the cross. At the same time, God sent his son to the cross for a completely different reason. And the motivation was love. And God sent his son to the cross and Jesus took it willingly in order to bless all families on the earth. And so you and I have the opportunity to view our suffering through the cross. Satan's greatest campaign to shame and mock God. Satan's greatest campaign to destroy you, to make you nothing to keep you as a child of God's wrath, to have no purpose in your life, but just to remain deceived, it cosmically backfired because God took the very means by which Satan had had used to concoct this awful thing called the crucifixion and God used it as the the rallying cry of all human history. And as you begin to see your suffering in light of the cross, that God could take a terrible thing like that. God could ordain something terrible like that for your ultimate good, for your ultimate blessing. You you can begin to see your own suffering and the tragedies that you have faced in a new way. That a sovereign God has providentially worked in every part of your life. He never looked away once. The darkest moment of your life, God had not looked away. He looked away when Jesus hung on the cross for the very sins committed against you and your own sins. But God has never looked away from you, friend, even in your darkest moment. And only the cross, only the Christian cross will reveal and prove that to you. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis said, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can ever make up for it. Have you ever felt that way? I, what I have gone through is so terrible that nothing in this life will pacify it. I'll never get over it. Never in all eternity will I ever get over what has happened. And C.S. Lewis believed just the opposite. He said, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards 
and turn even that agony into a glory. That is most evident, not only in Joseph's life and his suffering, but in the cross of Christ. And it's evident in your life. Will you see it? Will you begin to view your suffering and injustice through the lens of the cross of Christ? Before I pray, I want to read to you the words of a hymn. This is Samuel Cooper, 1774. I'm sorry, William Cooper, 1774. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we do not thank you and pray for and ask for tragedy or suffering or injustice because we know that you are holy and you require holiness and righteousness and love and justice. But Father, we do praise you that in a fallen world full of sinners like us and broken people like us, we praise you that you work your perfect plan even when we cannot see it in the very things that scar us and wounds us. And so we praise you all the more for our weaknesses because when we are weak, you are strong. When we are weak and insufficient, your grace is sufficient because your power is made perfect in our weakness. So may we boast in you and may we boast in how you work even in the most hopeless of situations. Redeem our perspective to see life, even our suffering, as you taught Joseph to see it, as Jesus proclaimed in his name. Amen.